welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. As 2017 drew to a close, the Iraqi Prime Minister, Haider al-Abadi, declared final victory in his country's war against Islamic State, more than three years after the terror group had captured one third of the country's territory. The Iraqi success came just a couple of months after US-backed militias in Syria declared victory over Islamic State in Raqqa, the de facto capital of the so-called caliphate it declared in 2014. It now holds just a few pockets of land in that country. But what does the loss of the group's caliphate in Syria and Iraq mean for the rest of the world? Is Islamic State weakened beyond repair? Or does it perhaps now pose an even greater threat than before? One observer who is very well placed to help us answer these questions is the New York Times journalist Rukmini Kalamaki, a three-time Pulitzer Prize finalist who specialises in covering Islamic State and has been studying and writing about the group for several years. Rukmini, thanks a lot for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Chris. Before I get back to the questions I referred to a moment ago about the level of threat Islamic State or ISIS poses today, can you tell us a bit about your work? It's an unusual, um, surprisingly probably, given um, uh, how much terrorism and the terrorism story dominates the world news agenda today. It's still an an unusual specialisation. What brought you to this work? Right. So my my focus uh, since coming to The Times has been uh, to cover the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. Uh, and I, I realize that sounds hyper-specialized to some people, but the reality is uh, when my editor asked me a couple of uh, a couple of months back if I'd be interested in also covering far-right extremist groups, I had to uh, politely decline because I feel that I'm, I'm not even able to keep up with all of the news I'd like to put out on ISIS. And I mean, covering uh, ISIS, it's not like uh, any normal newsroom beat, you know, it's a dangerous secretive group. It doesn't engage with Western media. You you can't phone them up and and ask them for a comment. So how do you go about getting, you know, information about a group like that? Right. It's, it's, um, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a very difficult beat um, that deals with what I would call untraditional sources and that, um, and that requires a creativity that I've that I've had to put in place. So I try to get information from a number of different sources. Um, I I believe the mistake that a lot of reporters that that touch on this beat make is they rely very heavily on officials. I realize why they do that, and at the beginning of my work in this field, I also did that. But you have to understand that um, terrorism and ISIS specifically has become such a politically charged issue that officials in every country are often trying to downplay the significance of any particular event because it reflects badly uh, on the administration that was that that did not stop the Paris attacks or the Orlando attack, etc. So I, I get information from, I would say, three other sources. Um, I have spent a lot of time cultivating sources who have access to, um, to the intelligence reports of recently arrested ISIS members, as well as the intelligence reports of... Uh, that have been done on the major terrorist attacks that have happened in the last couple of years. Uh, for example, the, the dossier on the Paris attacks um, now goes into quite literally the hundreds of thousands of pages. So I've been able to get um, many of these dossiers and I study them carefully uh, because you learn a lot about ISIS um, hand, you know, tradecraft uh, from that. The two other ways in which I work is I try to speak to ISIS members um, directly and I've been able to, to speak to probably... Um, at least two dozen of them. And I do this in prisons uh, in Europe, uh, in Iraq, uh, in Syria. And when I can, I speak to them also online. And then finally, I travel to the region quite frequently. I spent 
a large part of the last year in and around the city of Mosul in Iraq, uh, where I look for the documents that they have left behind and I interview residents that interacted with them. In fact, you mentioned documents left behind. I know you've I've seen reference in another interview you did to when you were working in, in Mali, how um, you, you really discovered this almost treasure trove of documents of, of um, written in Arabic left behind by the yes. terrorists after the French forces came in and drove them out. And that was right. kind of a significant moment for you, wasn't it, in terms of um, the speed? That was the birth of this beat for me. I mean, up until that moment, I had been covering the story like every other reporter, which is, you know, calling calling the Pentagon, calling the State Department, calling the ambassadors uh, and the political attache to various countries where where these groups operate. Um, and what I realized in Mali is, um, uh, mind you, I was finding those documents in January and February and March of 2013, and uh, Osama bin Laden, the head of Al Qaeda, had been killed in the late in in the fall of 2011. So I'm finding these things less than a year and a half after bin Laden had been killed. And the narrative that was coming out of both capitals uh, uh, in Europe and from Washington was that al-Qaeda had been decapitated, al-Qaeda had been decimated, al-Qaeda had been degraded. Uh, and they were describing the small groups that existed in other parts of the world, in Mali, in Somalia, in Yemen, as uh, opportunistic groups of criminals and thugs who were taking the al-Qaeda name in a grandiose fashion, but without any real connective tissue to the terror group. And yet there I was, picking up documents signed by the general manager of al-Qaeda, giving detailed instructions to the fighters in Mali on exactly how to carry out their jihad, right? And so I realized right away that the official narrative was wrong. It was dishonest, and it was um, and it was not in line with what the group was actually doing. And that was the first time when I realized that there was something I could contribute on this beat. And you also discovered, which I found really interesting, that there was a level of debate going on within the group about about their actions right. and about their tactics. And we tend sometimes to think that this is a mono, these are kind of monolithic groups just sort of engaging in acts of savagery and so on. And you found that actually, you know, there's a much, much more maybe sophisticated, something more sophisticated going on behind that. Yes, I think, you know... Uh, Terrorists, ever since probably 9-11 and perhaps even before, um, terrorists have been described as the ultimate monsters. You know, these are these are people who strap on suicide bombs and go into markets and kill civilians, including children, um, uh, in a cold-hearted uh, fashion. So I think we've gotten used to seeing them as the ultimate manifestation of evil, as as the boogeyman, right? Yes. The reality is they're human beings, of course. Of course, these 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 are people that somehow took a turn uh, at at some point in their lives and uh, and reached this moment uh, where they decided to take this action. And what I learned is that there are indeed debates in their ranks. For example, in Mali, there was a very heated debate about whether it was theologically justified to destroy the heritage of Timbuktu. Your listeners may remember that um, Timbuktu, this famous city in the desert uh, at the feet of the Sahara, um, had a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Uh, And those were these ancient mausoleums uh, that had been a tourist site for generations, and uh, al-Qaeda's unit in Timbuktu set out to destroy them. This very much upset the population. Um, UNESCO, you know, put out a number of press releases about it. And um, and, and when I had covered it, 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 this happened in 2012, I thought that that the group was monolithic in in thinking that, that it was a good thing to destroy um, these ancient sites. And in fact, I then picked up the documents that showed how they were having an internal discussion, an internal conflict about whether it was a wise choice. 
does that kind of discussion take place within the Islamic State group? Because we have, then have a really maybe particular view about Islamic State that it's just a destructive, you know, very sort of evil force, which it probably is. But and do those kind of debates take place within that group as well? Of course. And I mean, the thing the thing to keep in mind about all of these groups is that once again, they're being run by by human beings. Do we know of any organization where where people are 100 percent on the same page? I don't think that exists in, in, in humankind. And in the Islamic State, for example, there's been a long running debate uh, about takfir, which is the practice of excommunicating other Muslims. So who exactly can you can you uh, reject from the fold of Islam? Now, the Islamic State is more extreme um, and has gone, you know, further out than any other terrorist group in basically deeming anyone who disagrees with them uh, as being essentially a non-Muslim. And and it's that determination that allows them to kill them. Uh, it's that determination that allows them to kill children in the streets of uh, of Paris and London, um, uh, party goers in, in Orlando. Um, that debate becomes very thorny when you're talking other Sunni Muslims, um, Sunnis being the sect that ISIS also belongs to. Yes. And yes, they have had debates about this. They continue to have debates about this. And um, and and the, the slaughter of Sunni Muslims is what I have learned is often the thing that um, that ends up pulling uh, pulling people out of ISIS. Uh, young men and women who have gone to join ISIS from the West go there and at a certain point realize, oh, oh wait, a, wait a second, I thought that this group was killing the infidel, meaning Christians and Shias and these other groups. And it's the moment when they realize that they're also killing Sunnis that some of them have second thoughts. Rukmini, to come back then to the questions we posed maybe at the outset of the discussion, after the defeats in, in Iraq and Syria, which has left it with very little territory in those countries, there have been some confident sort of declarations of, you know, victory over the over Islamic State. But how would you characterize its strength? And I mean, it, it does have, it holds territory elsewhere. So could you give us a picture of what's the state of the organization today? First of all, um, I would not use, uh, I would not describe the caliphate as having been destroyed or having been lost. We're allowing, once again, officials to determine the narrative here. What has happened is that the group has lost significant territory in its base in Iraq and Syria. Um, According to the estimates that I got actually just on Friday, the group has gone from having around 100,000 square kilometers in Iraq and Syria to uh, having around 2,000 square kilometers. So they've gone, they've lost 98% of their territory in Iraq and Syria. However, Iraq and Syria is not the caliphate. We have to remember that this was a group that had global ambitions. And if you go back through the Islamic State's numerous pronouncements, uh, you'll recall that this is a group that had uh, over a dozen colonies, as they called them. At their height, they controlled an area that was the size of Great Britain that included Iraq and Syria. It included a hundred-mile coastline in Libya. It included part of the Sambesi forest in Nigeria. It included parts of the dunes of Mali and Niger. It included land in the Sinai Desert in Egypt. It included land in Yemen, in Afghanistan, and elsewhere. Now, what has happened is that their base in Iraq and Syria has been decimated. But outside of Iraq and Syria, what is troubling to me is that the group seems to be on the rise. And let me give you a couple of examples. In the country of Yemen, not too far away from Iraq and Syria, according to the U.S. um, uh, Pentagon, the number of ISIS fighters has doubled in the past year, has doubled. In Afghanistan, 
uh, where, where we're used to hearing about the Taliban. ISIS is now considered more deadly than the, ta- than the Taliban in numerous areas, including in Kabul, in the, in the capital. They are more dangerous to civilians than, than the Taliban, which is the, you know, the age-old enemy um, in, in Afghanistan. Uh, just in the, in the last couple of months, at the same time that we're talking about the loss of their base in Iraq and Syria, the group carried out the most deadly attack in Egypt's history. Um, this was an attack on a Sufi mosque in the Sinai uh, desert uh, that, that caused over 300 uh, deaths. That might be one of the single largest death tolls of any terrorist attack um, uh, you know, outside of 9-11. Um, they, have, they have had back-to-back inspired attacks in Manhattan, including one that was uh, in a subway tunnel a block away from my, my office. So that is what is troubling, is we're letting ourselves think that, uh, that, that the destruction of their base in Iraq and Syria, which truly was, was, of course, an important thing to take away, that that equals the loss of the caliphate, and it's not the case. So you clearly think we're underestimating Islamic State and that this narrative that has emerged from Iraq and Syria, it's kind of a dangerous one then, is it? This is the history of how we have treated terrorism. And this is why I, I urge younger reporters who are on this beat to get other sources than officials. Every official, every administration who comes to power needs to show the public that they have made gains against terrorism. It was actually uh, one of uh, the Trump administration's uh, campaign promises that they would destroy ISIS, right? Um, th- there's no, no administration can come to power and can allow um, uh, a major terrorist attack to happen or or a terrorist group to flourish without facing um, setbacks at the polls in the next uh, election. So um, we are once again doing what we have done practically every year since 9-11, which is to hype our gains um, and to take our eye off the ball and think that these gains somehow equals the erasure of the group. It doesn't. I suppose one of the things we have maybe convinced ourselves is that the, this, to come back again to Iraq and Syria, that the loss of so much territory there has reduced its ability to recruit people from, from Europe and elsewhere in the West because a lot of them were, that, that's where they went. Is, is that true or not then? Or are, are people who say from Europe who are vulnerable maybe to recruitment from Islamic State, are they now likely to go to Yemen or, or Afghanistan or some other place? Right. It, it is true that um, that the, the the Syria recruitment pipeline, which went through Turkey, a, a country that you know that many of us have visited and that is very friendly, you know, to Westerners. Um, that was one of the major strengths of uh, of ISIS, and that allowed quite literally tens of thousands of foreigners uh, to to flow into their recruitment pipeline. But as early as 2015, we saw the group in um, in their private uh, encrypted chats, which have become public as a result of court trials or, um, or declassified intelligence briefings. As far back as 2015, they were telling their recruits to pivot to Libya, uh, to Yemen, and to other parts of the battlefield because they were sensing that uh, the doors were closing on the the Syria-Turkey border. So, for example, um, we know that the Manchester attacker who who planted a bomb um, uh, and uh, and and caused such um, uh, such a tragedy uh, inside the Manchester uh, arena. arena. Yes. So we know that he had been traveling back and forth to Libya, and according. My own reporting, um, he was most likely in touch uh, with one of ISIS's premier units there. Right, so that is that is an attack that we believe. Uh, was led from Libya. Same thing with Anas Amri, who was the Berlin attacker. So we're seeing uh, a shift of their capabilities from Iraq and Syria to Libya. Right. The thing that is dangerous about the loss of the territory, and we, we saw this in Mali, um, is 
when they hold territory on the one hand that's 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 really bad because they're able to build capacity and um and experiment with things like chemical weapons and you know and and generally grow but on the other hand they have an address you know where they are right what has essentially happened now with the loss of their base in Iraq and Syria is it's kind of like you've kicked the hornet's nest right we don't know where all of those fighters have gone. We know that a large number of them have most likely been killed. Others have been arrested. But there's numerous uh, uh, key figures in the Islamic State that are not accounted for. We do not know where Baghdadi is, the leader of the Islamic State. Every intelligence assessment that I've been able to have is that he's still alive. And we don't know where he is. Um, right? Yeah. I, I'm sorry, and on the same point, we know, for example, that as part of the deal, you know, the, when, when Raqqa was retaken, that m- many of them were allowed to leave. Um, right. Do we right. know where those fighters went? I mean, you know, you have to hope that the administration does. But um, I know from speaking to the intelligence sources that I speak to that drone resources and aerial resources, uh, they're not able to track every single human being. You know, they're they're made to track um, high value, as they call them, high value targets, right? Um, and so maybe they're tracking some of them, uh, but it goes without saying that that some of them have also been lost in the melee. And Rukmini, in terms then of their ability also to carry out terrorist threats abroad, is it possible to assess what is the state of play there now? I mean, are, are Western governments um, getting a better handle on, you know, ISIS recruits coming home? Um, intelli- are intelligence services on top of this? Are are they still in a, you know, a position to strike sort of any Western city at any time? Well, one of the recent um, shifts that we've seen uh, in, um, in in ISIS's, ISIS's propaganda, I would say, is um, since the beginning of the rise of the Islamic State, you had two types of online messaging from the group. You had the official ISIS uh, propaganda uh, organs. We knew what they were. We knew what they were called. And then you had this much larger ecosystem that embraced it. That was what what some of us in our lingo called the ISIS fanboys. So these were supporters, um, people who agreed with the ISIS ideology, who were most likely in their in their you know in their mom's basement somewhere um, using uh, using a VPN to mask their their IP address, and who were augmenting uh, that propaganda. We've recently seen uh, that the official Propaganda has gone down. So the the the, the large scale media releases that ISIS used to put out have gone down, and that's likely because you know their their newsrooms in Iraq and Syria have been bombed, and their filmmakers and uh, editors may have been killed or are on the run. But we're seeing that that the fan um, the ISIS fanboys are very much stepping in. So, for example, in the back-to-back uh, attacks that we had in Manhattan um, uh, in, in um, over Halloween uh, of last year uh, and um, and just a couple weeks ago in, uh, in Times Square, um, what we know about those attackers is that they were inspired by messaging that they saw online calling for attacks on Halloween and Christmas. And those were put out by ISIS fanboys. Those were not official ISIS posters. So it's as if this this more uh, amorphous, uh, less organized, uh, more amateurish online ecosystem is now very much coming into its own and is responsible for actually inciting attacks. And you've touched on something there, Rukmini, that, that always interests us in, in, in the newsroom and, and on, on the foreign desk and on the news desk. Whenever you have a, a terrorist uh, attack, for example, you know, we've made several attacks in Britain this year, one outside the House of Parliament, you know, where alone an attacker went up and, you know, stabbed a policeman having earlier driven over Westminster Bridge and not uh, tried to run people down and so on. And then you got a, a statement of claim from 
Islamic State or from a recognised Islamic State uh, outlet maybe within 24 hours and you're never really sure how to treat that is when Islamic State claims an attack is there a typical scenario if when they claim an attack can you take that as a kind of credible claim or is yeah. Islamic State is opportunist and you know when somebody acts carries out an action inspired by Islamic State does it opportunistically then sort of make that claim how do you treat those kind of statements from Islamic State? Right. Uh, the the accepted wisdom, the way that I think most people um, look at those claims is they view them as opportunistic and they view them as, you know, not much more than hot air. And I think that this is a case of us underestimating the group. I have tracked their claims of responsibility very carefully um, since uh, 2014. Um, every time they claim uh, an attack uh, outside of Iraq and Syria or, or uh, on a major attack uh, in the West, I have kept track of the time when they claimed it um, uh, compared to the time of the attack. And then I have tracked that information with what came out in the intelligence uh, assessment afterwards. The thing you have to remember um, is that the Islamic State considers an attack to be their handiwork if it's carried out by an actual card-holding member of the group, like the Paris attackers who came directly from Syria, or if it's an attack by somebody they inspired through their propaganda. Both of those categories in the Islamic State's mind um, are what they call soldiers of the caliphate. And this is a distinction that we keep on not understanding. They do not see a difference between those two categories. It's us in the West that creates a difference there. And so when they say that the Manhattan attacker was, uh, was a soldier of the caliphate, that's what they mean, that this is a person who somewhere, some, somehow saw their propaganda and was moved to violence and carried out the violence uh, in their name. If you understand that definition of how they look at their fighters, their claims of responsibility are remarkably accurate. Um, there's, far, there's far more cases where they did not claim an attack that we knew that that we know in in retrospect was carried out by them, then cases where they erroneously claim an attack. Let me give you a couple of examples. Your listeners might remember the attack that happened on the Istanbul airport um, over over a year ago. Yes, we know from the intelligence assessment that that was ISIS. It was actually core ISIS. They sent those fighters from their core territories. ISIS never claimed it. We can get into the reasons why, but they never claimed it, and that was a deadly and um, and and. In a way, a catastrophic attack. It was on a major airport in an EU country, right? Mm. Um, similarly, the Sinai attack that just happened, uh, you know, uh, just over a month ago um, uh, in Egypt, that killed over 300 people. One of the most deadly attacks uh, that um, that 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 happened on a single day. ISIS, we know, is behind it. They have threatened that particular area and uh, that particular um, uh, Sufi uh, community numerous times in their publications. There's no doubt about that. They never claimed it, right? So it's it's more it's actually more common that they don't claim attacks that, in retrospect, we know they did than that they falsely claim attacks, like we saw most likely after the Las Vegas, um, the Las Vegas shooting uh, a few months back. Sure. And why wouldn't they then claim an attack? I know you said we might, we could get into it, but I mean, uh, given the terrorist groups want want to spread terror, you know, so usually they do want maybe yeah. the, the credit. So what would what would um why would they hold back in in these circumstances? So the main the main working theory that I believe uh, is in play here is um, you have to look at the victims of the attack. Keep in mind, this is a group that claims to be the protector of Sunni Muslims. Right. Um, and so in, in a place like the Istanbul uh, airport where 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 Sunni Muslims are walking around and where most likely Sunni Muslims were killed, 
this is something where they have to be careful about claiming credit. They, uh, they after that attack, Al Qaeda. I mean, you you don't think of Al Qaeda as actually being a group that you know stands up for human rights, but Al Qaeda came out and said that they had quote uh, spilled blood un- unlawfully because it's unlawful to kill Sunni Muslims. So the same thing happened in the Sinai. The Sinai was um, was a Sufi mosque, but there were Sunni uh, uh, worshippers also inside. Um, and, and, and so when you have a situation where there's a large casualty figure um, that might include Sunni Muslims, you will see that the group thinks twice about claiming it. There's another dilemma we have sometimes in, in newsrooms, then it's how much coverage we give to terror attacks. And like if you take the Manchester attack that you mentioned, I mean, Manchester yeah. is just short distance across the Irish Sea from here. So many people killed, young people killed in the concert. It would be really odd for us not to give that major coverage in our newspaper. So we, we probably on the first day had five or six broadsheet pages in print. Yeah major coverage online and so on. And at the same time, we are asking ourselves, well, are we not really just kind of giving the terrorists what they want? You know, right. how, how do you kind of square that circle with your own work, you know, where you're obviously, you know, bringing into the public domain, you know, their activities and maybe giving them this kind of attention. So what, sure. how do you think we should approach that as journalists? Look, the thing the thing that bothers me about this debate is the people who are, who are making this claim that we're giving them uh, coverage. These are people who are not embedded on their platforms. I assure you that if you are embedded on their platforms as I am, and you see the amount of material they put out every day, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of posts, uh, calling for attacks, celebrating attacks, uh, discussing attacks, you know, sharing how-tos, how to make bombs, how to, whatever, without seeing the, the volume that they themselves put out, I don't think that we are in a position um, to to make a judgment about uh, about the, the the mainstream media. They call me and what you do and what you know the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN. They call us the Kufar media, the infidel media, and they teach their followers to not believe anything that is in in the quote infidel media. They, I mean, they they have a rhetoric around our coverage that is meant to discount our coverage, and so I don't actually believe this trope that it is um, that it is it is the Western media that is amplifying their message. They are amplifying their message themselves. They're doing it every day uh, in their channels, and they're teaching their followers to believe that and not to believe what you and I are writing about the Manchester attack. Because let's face it, when you and I write about the Manchester attack, we're not writing about that as if it's a positive thing. We're writing about that um, with with the pathos and tragedy that that uh, uh, incident wh- where where young people, preteens, were killed. Um, we think of that as something horrific, yes. right? Disaffected people in the West who are vulnerable to Islamic State propaganda. How does ISIS get through to them? And and um, like, where do people people find you know this propaganda? Is it um, through social media platforms and so on, or how, how does that all work? So ISIS um, at its height was embedded on on pretty much every um, social media platform. I'm profiling a young man from North America right now um, who reached ISIS through Tumblr and Instagram. Right. Um, and so on every one of these plan- platforms, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Twitter, uh, whether it's YouTube, you can, with just a couple of keystrokes, end up in a very dark corner of the Internet quite quickly. Um, and that is where that is a puzzle that I don't quite know how to address. There's people um, in the counterterrorism community that have very aggressively uh, pushed that um, a, a kind of censorship, you know, that that we need to be shutting down these sites as quickly as possible. That seems to be happening on YouTube, for example, where they finally pulled down most of Anwar Awlaki's uh, lectures. He was an American member of, of, of Al-Qaeda. 
But it's not being pulled down fast enough. It's not being pulled down so fast that that a curious person cannot find their way to one of these rooms. Once you find and make contact with them and show an interest in their ideology, very quickly they they move you from an open setting like um, like a, a Facebook wall or a Twitter timeline to a direct message. So you're doing a one-on-one chat. And from there, they take you to an encrypted app, um, which makes it difficult for officials to follow. Uh, and at that point, you just have to wonder and hope that the individual has the wherewithal and has had enough of an education to understand um, that these people who are luring them don't necessarily have their best interests in mind. Just just to, to, to finish up and kind of look at the broader picture again, I'd be interested in getting your take on wh- what do you think Islamic State's goals are? I mean, we know it has a sort of declared aim to destroy Western civilization, but does it have more medium strategic aims? Um, if we take them at their word, what they are trying to do is they are trying to establish a global caliphate. Uh, a caliphate is essentially a theocracy uh, where where the government um, uh, rules a state that is that is ruled by Sharia principles. That is what they claim to be doing, and and part of that aim involves wiping the earth clean of of uh, of the unfaithful, of the infidel. That's you and I. Um, I think they have been actually pretty true to those aims. If you look at their their strategies in terms of attacks and what they have done when they have taken territory, that seems to be what they are indeed trying to do. Well, Rukmini, listen, this has been a really interesting discussion and we'll continue to follow your work in this area in the New York Times. And thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you. That's all for this week. For more on this and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. <laughs>